Okay, total silence. This is the moment when, if I, when I was in the classroom, I would, I would take a step back and do this on, on a chalkboard just to give, get everybody's attention. And the, the, the women especially like that because it, it never bothered me to hit fingernails on a scratch on a chalkboard, but some people freak out. Okay, my, my topic uh, for today, uh, this afternoon, is uh, the great nonsense of the Great Reset. And in uh, uh, the Great Reset, uh, as I see it, is the latest um, euphemism for totalitarian socialism. And it's promoted by some of the wealthiest people in the world, uh, 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 like uh, <clears throat> Schwab, uh, Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, uh, and, and, and their ilk. And uh, Schwab's uh, organization, the World Economic Forum, uh, on their website, they claim the purpose of it, and it's been around for quite a while, is uh, the, to connect business and government, you know, big business and big government, to basically run the world. And very fascistic, isn't it? That's, that's basically what economic fascism was uh, many decades ago, the marriage of, of business and government. And I consider people like Schwab and, and Gates, for that matter, to be the... Uh, uh, ideological heirs of Frederick Engels. Frederick Engels was a wealthy uh, manufacturer who bankrolled Karl Marx. And so, you know, what's the difference? You, know, you have these wealthy uh, industrialists who are bankrolling a movement for socialism for the 21st century. Frederick Engels bankrolled uh, the movement for socialism in the 19th century. And uh, so I consider these people to be sort of the intellectual heirs. And I consider the Great Reset to be, you know, just another euphemism, a, a deceptive euphemism for socialism, you know, right along with uh, economic democracy, social justice, liberation theology, progressivism, market socialism. Now, there's an oxymoron for you. It's kind of, kind of like uh, military intelligence, isn't it? Uh, uh, market socialism, uh, environmentalism, cl fighting climate change, sustainable development, and Green New Deal. They're all, all euphemisms for socialism of one form or another. And the thing that's different about Schwab and, and the great so-called Great Reset is uh, they champion what they call transhumanism which I consider to be a new word for eugenics. It's basically the same thing as eugenics. And Ron Paul published an article a while back entitled, The Great, quote, The Great Reset is about expanding government power and suppressing liberty. That's the title of the article. You look it up on the web. And he said in this, he said this about Schwab and the World Economic Forum. Included in Schwab's proposal for surveillance of every citizen, surveillance, you know, with inserting microchips in your brain, for example, is his idea to use brain scans and nanotechnology to predict and, if necessary, prevent individuals' future behavior. This means that anyone whose brain is, quote, scanned, could have his constitutional rights violated because a government bureaucrat somewhere determines that the individual is going to commit a crime. Not necessarily a murder or a rape or something, but maybe criticizing Joe Biden, you know, that, that could be a crime. You know, that depends on how you define crime. And so, so you know, some people think this sounds like a kind of a science fiction-ish, doesn't it? But Ron Paul's a serious guy, 
and uh, and he's that's his opinion. You know, he doesn't think this is a hoax. <laughs> that's for sure. I know some libertarians sort of poo-poo the, the whole thing, and so it really is a form of eugenics. And it's it's interesting that the sort of the the wealthy elite of the world have been infatuated by eugenics for a long time. Uh, and there's a, a writer who's written a bunch of uh, several articles on Mises.org, Anthony Muller. He uh, points out that this uh, eugenics was all the rage among some famous people in the 20th century. I wrote down a list of some of them, H.G. Wells, George Bernard Shaw, <clears throat> Charles Darwin's son, Leonard, John Maynard Keynes, Irving Fisher, Winston Churchill, Bill Gates Sr., and Bill Gates Jr., by the way, you know, the founder, co-founder of Microsoft, is an, an enthusiastic funding source for this transhumanism. This idea of injecting uh, maybe a vaccine into people's bodies with, that will alter their DNA, for example, or, or somehow sneak a computer chip into your head, you know, somehow, sort of his, 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 his uh, dream of doing. And these people all, all seem to have had this, this compulsion to do something to remake the world in their image somehow. Uh, and so, uh, for example, uh, Bill Gates gave a, one of the, uh, the TED Talks, one of the famous TED Talks a while back, where he said this, the world today has 6.8 billion people, and that's headed up to about 9 billion. Then he said, if we, we, uh, if we do a really good job on vaccines, good job on vaccines, healthcare, reproductive health services, that probably includes birth control, but uh, maybe abortion too. Uh, we could lower that by perhaps 10 to 15%, that is the world population. So if he says, if we do a really good job with vaccines, we could uh, reduce the world population by as much as 15%, Bill Gates says. Bill Gates, who, who owns seven vaccine factories uh, okay, and brags about it. And so that's, that's Gates. Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, was the treasurer of the Cambridge University Eugenics Society. It's another person who wanted to remake the planet in his, his image. He called eugenics, quote, the most important and significant branch of sociology. So that's the Keynesian School of Economics. The Chicago School of Economics, the founder is Irving Fisher. He wrote a book. He wrote the book on eugenics entitled Eugenics. Uh, I, bought, uh, I, I have a copy. I bought it online. I was kind of curious. I mean, you know, what did Irving Fisher say about eugenics? So I have it on. I just moved into a new house because I wanted to bring it, just flash it around. It's Irving Fisher, eugenics, you know, the founder of the Chicago School. Okay. Winston Churchill was a big eugenicist. He advocated this. These are Churchill's words. Um, I took a history course as an undergraduate uh, on uh, European history, and I, I can recall, this is back in the Stone Age, the professor playing records of all of Churchill's speeches. It was the most boring uh, time of my entire educational career, sitting in a, in a hot classroom listening to Churchill's speeches on a record player. Even, I remember even the professor fell asleep during, during that. <laughs> he, he, was, he was an elderly gent. Here, here's, here's what Churchill said about... Uh, on this topic, he advocated the confinement, segregation, and sterilization of a class of persons contemporarily described as the feeble-minded. 
He said his goal is, quote, the improvement of the British breed. How is that different from what Hitler said about the master race? Accordingly, he supported, quote, compulsory detention of the mentally inadequate. And of course, the state would decide whether you are mentally adequate or not. The sterilization of the unfit, and the state would, would decide who's fit and who's unfit to have children. And the proper labor colonies, not improper, proper labor colonies for tramps and wastrels. I bet that statue of Churchill at Hillsdale College does not have those words inscribed on the bottom of it, <laughs> of all the things. And so people such as this in the early 20th century uh, advocated uh, some sort of worldwide central planning, worldwide government uh, to, to implement some of their schemes. And the first thing was the United Nations, uh, you know, they, the, the United Nations. And they created UNESCO, United Nations Education, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, almost immediately when the United Nations was found, was uh, founded. And its stated goal at the time was this, was, quote, to manipulate human development. The uh, person in charge of this was a eugenicist named Julian Huxley, his, I think it was his brother or his cousin wrote The Brave New World. Okay, it wasn't him, it was his relative. And he was the first director of UNESCO. And he, was, he, he lamented, he complained that Marxism had one big problem. They were all on board with Marxism. This, this is the future, Marxism. But the problem with Marxism is the following. Marxism's attempt to create a new type of human, that is, socialist man, uh, had already failed because it lacked a biological component. Okay, so we need to use biology to change human beings somehow. And so that was the, the early 20th century scheme for some sort of, to have some sort of world government like the United Nations implement this eugenicist scheme. That didn't work. It failed. They, you know, their dreams were not realized. They ended up just being a bunch of kooks talking about eugenics. Okay. But they never give up. That's one thing about socialists. They never, they never give up. Okay, so the next thing they, they hit on, you know, fast forward several decades, and the United Nations is there, but it doesn't do anything but cause a bunch of wars. That's basically uh, United Nations. And so, and so the next thing they, they settled on was environmentalism. You know, the people as, a, as the argument for world government. Now, when 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 the world when socialism collapsed all around the world, the Soviet Union imploded, Eastern and Central Europe, uh, and so forth. Uh, uh, Robert Heilbrunner published a famous article in the New Yorker magazine, September tenth, nineteen ninety, called "After Capitalism." This is the one where he says Mises was right. He gets the reason why Mises was right wrong in the article, but at least he said Mises was right. Uh, you know, he, he confused Hayek and Mises on the you know, cause of uh, the collapse of socialism. But, but Mises was right, so it was a big mea culpa. But at the end of the article, he says, uh, and I'm, I'm not, he didn't say these words, but he, what his meaning is, but don't give up fellow socialists. Okay, and he says this, I'm quoting him. Socialism is a society that must emerge Okay, socialism has just collapsed, but it must emerge. Okay, if humanity is to cope with the ecological burden that economic growth is placing on the environment, capitalism must be monitored, regulated, and contained to such a degree that it would be difficult to call the final social order capitalism at all. 
So it was his sort of a clarion call to his fellow socialists, don't give up the ship. You know, don't give up the ship. Yes, uh, socialism has imploded uh, all over the world, but uh, we can revive it under the guise of saving the planet in the name of the worms and the lizards and the chickens and, and the trees and, and all, all that stuff. Okay, so that's Heilbronner. And so for the next several decades, you know, in fact, uh, you know, th this had already been going on, of course, environmentalism the, in America, the environmental movement, late 60s, early 70s, uh, was spawned. Uh, and I, I distinguish between the conservation movement, by the way, and the environmentalist movement. The conservation movement is people who want to conserve natural resources, you know, people who uh, join Ducks Unlimited to create habitat for ducks and Trout Unlimited, things like that. Uh, and the environmentalists are basically uh, watermelons. They're, they're, they're green on the outside, red on the inside. You know, they're, 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 you know, they're agitators to destroy capitalism and adopt socialism in the name of the trees and the, and the grass and the worms and the, and the lizards and everything, all that stuff. Okay. Okay, now, the, the, and so the Competitive Enterprise Institute in Washington published a very interesting study a couple years ago called Wrong Again, 50 Years of Failed Eco-Pocalyptic Predictions. The authors are uh, Myron Ebel and Stephen Malloy. And they took a look at what the environmentalist movement has said over, for 50 years. And, and included in this study are the original pages from Time Magazine, New York Times, the British Guardian. You know, so you could look at the actual uh, quotes from, from people. And, and so they, they settled on this strategy. Now, keep in mind, the story I'm telling here is these are the same people who, who always want some sort of world government to, to impose worldwide socialism. So you understand that the theory behind this is sort of can be explained by a syllogism. Point number one, socialism has been a tremendous failure everywhere it has been tried. Point number two, everybody knows this. Point number three, Therefore, we need even more socialism on a much bigger scale. That's basically what, what this is all about, the Great Reset is, is saying. Okay, so, so to go about, I'm going to read over a couple of these uh, headlines from newspapers beginning in the 1960s uh, of the environmental movement. November 17, 1967, Salt Lake Tribune, time of famine is upon us and will be disastrous by 1975. Birth control may have to be made involuntary, said Paul Ehrlich, who's, who's the real founder of the American uh, environmental movement. And, and he said, putting sterilization agents into staple foods and drinking water may also be necessary, Paul Ehrlich. Paul Ehrlich is a, an entomologist, that is a bug specialist. And uh, he, he, wrote, he wrote a famous book, uh, The Limits to Growth, uh, in, the, in the, the 60s, which was considered to be sort of the the spawning uh, literature of the environmentalist movement. New York Times quoted Ehrlich in 1969 as saying, unless we're extremely lucky, everybody will disappear in a cloud of blue steam in 20 years. <laughs> 1969. This is a celebrated Stanford University endowed shareholder who has been given dozens and dozens of awards by academe for his uh, scholarship. Blue steam. Okay, <clears throat> that didn't work. That didn't work. You know, the, the scare tactic of uh, too many people on the planet and not enough resources, we're going to run out of everything, starve to death, and disappear in a puff of smoke. 
that didn't scare people into giving up their freedom and, and handing it over to the United Nations. So the next uh, uh, scheme was predicting a new ice age. Pollution is going to cloud the skies so much uh, that it's going to block the sun and we're all going to freeze to death. April 18th, 1970, Boston Globe. Air pollution may obliterate the sun and cause a new ice age in the first third of the next century. Paul Ehrlich again, October 6, 1970, uh, in a Redlands, California paper. The oceans will be dead in less than a decade because of pollution caused by capitalism. They will be frozen over. Okay. July 9th, 1971, Washington Post uh, quoted, quotes a NASA uh, researcher saying, pollution will cause an average temperature drop of as much as 10 degrees that could be sufficient to trigger an ice age. December 3rd, 1972, another uh, National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I remember my old friend Jim Bennett, when we, we, we were reading an article about this one, saying the government thinks it can even ad administer the atmosphere. How about that? Atmospheric administration. The bureaucrats in Washington who can't administer their way out of a garbage bag uh, are going to administer the atmosphere of the world. Okay. Okay, but they said a global deterioration of climate never before seen by civilized mankind will lead to a new ice age. January 29, 1974, article in The Guardian, the British newspaper, space satellites show a new ice age coming fast. In Time magazine in 1974, there are telltale signs everywhere that we're already in a new ice age. Okay. So uh, by 1978, as late as 1978, the New York Times said an international team of specialists finds no end in sight to a 30-year cooling trend in the northern hemisphere. That was 1978. Well, that didn't work. They tried to threaten, threaten the, the world that we're all going to freeze to death and die from uh, pollution caused by capitalism unless we adopt worldwide socialism. Uh, the world didn't bite. So they, they sort of switched on a dime from then. And here's a uh, uh, June 24th, 1988, 10 years later, Miami News uh, uh, article saying, 1988 is on the way to be the hottest ever as world temperatures are up sharply. So, so they, they turned on a dime from the ice age to global warming. Okay, December 12th, 1988, uh, uh, NASA, said Washington, D.C. would go from its current 35 days a year of over 90 degrees to 85 days a year, and the level of the ocean will rise by as much as six feet. Now, rising seas could obliterate entire nations, they said. Uh, the CEI, Competitive Enterprise Institute, that published this study I'm quoting from, pointed out that in reality, the number of 90-degree-plus days in Washington, D.C. peaked in the year 1911. Okay, and continues to decline. Okay, so you wonder how they extrapolated that to, to, to make this forecast. By the year 2000, said the Washington Post, uh, people will be, be thinking that, quote, snowfalls are now just a thing of the past. It's not going to be so hot, it's not going to snow. Uh, by 2013, the Arctic will be free of sea ice, said James Hansen of NASA. And uh, the world-renowned astrophysicist Al Gore said uh, <laughs> the North Polar ice cap would be gone by 2008. Okay. 
senator, the, uh, senator from Massachusetts, Ed Markey, call, called Gore a climate prophet for saying that. Okay. Another uh, renowned atmospheric scientist, Prince Charles, told The Independent on July 9th, 2009, quote, the price of capitalism and consumerism is just too high. The planet will be destroyed by 2017 if capitalism is not essentially des destroyed immediately. Yeah, Prince Charles, as he, uh, as he rides around in his Rolls Royce and his uh, ga gas guzzling Rolls Royce and his jet. Uh, former British Prime Minister Gordon Brown chimed in October 20th, 2009, saying, quote, we have fewer than 50 days to save our planet from catastrophe. <laughs> uh, and then uh, the United Nations in 2018, a couple years ago, said the world will likely end in 12 years. That's where that girl from Westchester County got this. It's uh, Sandy Orquez in Congress. Uh, uh, she claims to be from the hood in Brooklyn or someplace, you know, to, to get elected. But she, she grew up in wealthy Westchester County and went to high school there and then moved to Brooklyn to run for Congress, pretending she's a, you know, a, a, a plebeian or something. Uh, okay, so, well, well, that didn't work either, did it? We didn't, we didn't give up all our freedom and hand it over to the United Nations central planners. And so... They switched for a while to climate change. You know, you know, ice age didn't work. Gonna burn up. That didn't work. Well, well, the climate's gonna change now. That's that's the next thing, and so and that hasn't worked so far. We haven't given up. They're still at it. They're still working at it. it has, but it hasn't worked so far, uh, and, and and so so the next thing to come along is the Great Reset. It's the, it's sort of the continuum of the same people, the same types of people, be, beginning with Keynes and Irving Fisher and and uh, you know, all these people that I mentioned at the beginning. And so you have the, the World Economic Forum that says it's, it's, uh, it's all about, quote, public-private cooperation. And uh, Klaus Schwab, you know, the, the linchpin, uh, you know, I think one, one sort of smart remark I make in this paper I'm reading from is uh, about him is just what the world needs, another German with an infatuation about creating a master race and ruling the world. That's basically uh, Klaus Schwab, okay, who looks just like Mr. Clean. If you look up Mr. Clean on the Google, Mr. Clean, just, just like Klaus Schwab. Uh, he, he, he claims to have a PhD in economics and a PhD in engineering, although I want, I'm not sure what school he went to in economics, because he seems to think just the language, the Great Reset, tells you he seems to think that the economy is something that you could literally push a button, you know, figuratively speaking, to, to reset it. You can, destroy, you can destroy an entire country's economy and then start it up from scratch, and then maybe in a year or two, everything will be peachy. Uh, he doesn't understand that institutions evolve in the, in the marketplace. You know, even money evolved. You know, no go government did not create money. Language evolved. No government created language, uh, except for uh, Esperanto, I guess, was created by man. But other than that, real language evolved through, uh, through human society. He doesn't seem to have any, any understanding at all of that. Or if he does, he doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's just, you know, libido dominante, as, as Judge Napolitano says, the lust to dominate other people. Okay. And so, and so of course, they're all about destructionism. I gave my talk uh, yesterday about destructionism. And uh, evidence of that is that not too long ago, a couple of months ago, 
there was a, a meeting of the World Economic Forum, and they got uh, they had a video. It was a video conference because everybody's still locked down where they were in, in Europe. And the video showed the empty streets of New York City, the empty seats of Rome, the empty seats of streets of London because of the lockdowns. And the people at the World Economic Forum on the video were heard cheering and clapping and shouting of it, of it. There, you know, applause, you know, wild applause, because this is what they want. This is what they want. They, they, it worked. You know, the, the lockdowns is what they want because uh, it gives them an excuse to reset the economy. You know, destroy it. You know, they destroyed it better than socialism itself could have destroyed it. You know, just a dictate of a lockdown. You know, when they first started doing this. I was thinking, uh, uh, you know, about the teaching of macroeconomics, you know, all this teaching about what government does to supposedly to stabilize the economy. I wonder where lockdowns are going to fit in there in the macroeconomics book someday, where, where the benevolent and omniscient government that stabilizes the economy, one of its tools now is going to be lockdowns. So they're going to have to have a, a section of the macroeconomics books, I suppose now, on the virtues of lockdowns. Some, somehow, you know, or else how are they going to get out of that? How are they going to excuse that away? Um, and so, so they got caught doing this and they took it off their website, but it's on the web. You know, so other people got this video and, and it's on there. Okay. And then uh, to show you how serious this is, some of these uh, quotes that I read earlier about the threats of an ice age and, and uh, we're gonna, then we're going to burn up from global warming come from... There's a big research outfit at the University of East Anglia in England, and they're well known for the global warming hysteria and all this. And about the same time as this World Economic Forum meeting, they came out and advocated lockdowns of the world economy every other year, not because of any virus or anything like that, but just for good measure, because it'll reduce carbon dioxide emissions. You know, they, they claim that that's the thing. That's, that's what it's all about. It's all about climate change, that we need to reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions. And G Gates gave a talk where he actually talked about uh, the goal ultimately being zero carbon dioxide emissions, which, you know, how can you, how can you get that if people still breathe? You know, when you breathe out carbon dioxide, how's, how's that going to happen? Zero, zero uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Okay. So, so, so that's where they're at now. I mean, they're, they're talking about, don't be, I, I would not be surprised if some governments somewhere buy into this uh, the, from the University of East Anglia and saying, well, we need to just shut everything down and take a break uh, because they advocate a you know, guaranteed annual income. They want to print up enough money to just send checks to everybody so that we don't all starve to death and they can still keep us working and paying taxes eventually when uh, when the, after the Great Reset takes, takes place. So that's the University of East Anglia. Uh, another thing that they're advocating is uh, the, the abolition of private property. That's, if you read the Communist Manifesto, that's, you know, the top planks, uh, uh, top plank is the abolition of private property. And then, then comes a heavy progressive income tax. And here's uh, a presenter at a World Economic Forum meeting Former Danish Minister of Environment, Ida Auken, A-U-K-E-N is how her last name is spelled. And she said this, and her speech was reprinted in Forbes magazine. And she said this, quote, welcome to the year 2030. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. 
She's not a nudist, as far as I know. Uh, someone else is using our house whenever we do not need it. I have no real privacy. Everything I do is recorded by the state. All in all, it is a good life. So that's her, her dream. And, uh, and she caught hell for this. You know, there was a Forbes magazine, and she was pilloried for this crazy idea. And, uh, and the, so she backtracked, and she said, oh, I'm not advocating this. I'm just saying this is what's going to happen. I mean, I'm just, I'm a scientist, and I'm predicting that this is what is going to be. And so, and so well, you know, why criticize it? Because it's inevitable. And so they've been making that argument that this is inevitable because of, they say, because of the digitalization of life, uh, that uh, all of these things are going to be possible, and we won't be able to fight it. You know, people are going to want this. That is, in other words, the government will own everything. All the clothing that you have access to, the cars, uh, everything, and we will all rent all of this from the government. That's that's their plan. That's their dream. <laughs> their their plan. Okay. Yeah, yes, it's it's nutty, but that's uh, that's their plan. And and of course, in a system like that, uh, as as Hayek once said, uh, in such a system like that, the only power worth having would be political power. So this would be, you know, the, the biggest amount of corruption and bribery uh, in, uh, in, uh, imaginable in all of human history. Because if the government, you know, whenever the government allocates resources, those with the ability to bribe their way into it will. And those without the ability to bribe there will just do without uh, or, or turn to crime or something like that. And uh, they want to spy on your every move. They, they, they applaud the fact that the government wants... Uh, it's, uh, transhumanism. They, they want to somehow, you know, put a chip in your brain or something—a brain scan, as, as they call it—so they can they can spy on every, everything you do. And another a weird thing that she said was about the, the housing. She said, "Well, you know, if uh, my husband and I live in this house and there's two or three bedrooms, and we're not using one of them, then you know, why shouldn't we allow strangers to come in there and use the bedroom? It's empty. You know, come on in. It's. It reminded me of the movie Doctor Zhivago. I don't know how many of you, the young people, may have never seen Doctor Zhivago, but the beginning was. It's about the Russian Revolution, and at the beginning of the movie, uh, there's this uh, prosperous doctor, Doctor Zhivago, who's living a pretty good life. And then, the, then the communists take over and communal housing, and all of a sudden he's living in a tiny little apartment with like 10 other families or something like that. That seems to be the image that, uh, that this woman, the Danish, former Danish environmental minister, is giving for, that's a good life, that's a good life. Okay, now it's easy to, uh, to say these people are crazy, but, but didn't people say the same thing about Marx and uh, Stalin and, and the rest too? That's, uh, these ideas were kind of nutty. Okay, so it reminds me of the Soviet Union's socialized housing. Let's see. Okay, and one of the arguments they make is they make that the, the digitalization of life and nanotechnology is so complicated and will make, make uh, business and industry and commerce so complicated that they said it mu there must be centralized political control of all of this because it's just too complicated. And that, of course, is exactly the opposite of what Friedrich Hayek devoted his entire academic life to explaining that the more complicated uh, an economy becomes, the more necessary it is to rely on de decentralized knowledge, not centralized knowledge, especially centralized knowledge in the minds of dopey politicians 
or 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 freaks like Klaus Schwab, uh, as far as that goes. And so, uh, just the opposite. Another thing that they talk about is uh, I call it the stakeholder subterfuge. They want to do away with the whole idea of shareholders in in corporations, and uh, and adopt stakeholders. And this is something that's been talked about for decades. The whole stakeholder theory, and it's basically anybody who's affected by a corporation, not just the employees, but the customers, the suppliers, and, uh, and on of the communities that they uh, exist in, also supposedly have a stake in the company, even if they did not invest a single penny in the, in the company. Okay. Now, one of the things that public choice economics teaches us is that if you have a disparate group like this, with people with all very different interests, and a very large group, it would be impossible for them to coalesce and make any kind of reasonable decisions because the decision-making costs would be so high uh, with, a, with a big group like this. You know, it would be hard enough for like, this room, the people in this room, to agree on, on things if we were running a, a restaurant in, uh, in, in Auburn, for example. Uh, but, but a corporation, uh, with all the decisions that have to be made, getting the input from maybe dozens or hundreds of different stakeholder groups, uh, that would be unmanageable. Therefore, they propose, well, they, we would need some sort of representative democracy, somebody, and of course, we are available. Klaus Schwab, Bill Gates, we're available. You know, we'll, we'll, we will make the decisions in the name of the stakeholders, okay? And of course, whenever that happens, they make the decisions in the name of themselves. You know, or, or for themselves in the name of the stakeholders, okay, who, who most of whom do not have a financial stake in, in the business, which is another fatal flaw of, of the whole idea. But that's what they want to do. That's what they want to do. Okay. And we're supposed to uh, be quiet about this. And, and basically what it is is a form of uh, super fascism, this, this sort of a marriage of business and government to have international powers. It's uh, super fascism, it's not just fascism in a single country. They want, they want to have international influence in, uh, under the Great Reset. Let's see. Yeah, let's see about a few more things I want to mention here. Oh yeah, they don't like meat. <laughs> uh, They don't like meat. They, uh, they, they advocate the abolition of beef 20 years ago. It must have been 20 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. My, my, friend, my old friend Jim Bennett showed me this book that I thought the guy who wrote it was a, a, a lunatic. His name is Jeremy Rifkin. And he wrote this book called Beyond Beef. And uh, it, 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 uh, it argued that uh, cow farting creates methane gas, which uh, exacerbates the greenhouse effect, which causes global warming, which is gonna, you know, could lead to worldwide catastrophe. Therefore, we need to get rid of cows, and cow flatulence. Okay, Jeremy Rifkin, and I knew, I knew who he was, he was sort of a gadfly. He would write, he wrote a bunch of books kind of just, just as nutty as this on, on all sorts of topics. I and mean, this was his latest nutty book. And, Jim Bennett shows me this, and we had a good laugh over it. And, and, uh, and, but now you have the, the wealthiest people on the planet being Rifkinites. They want to they do it, including Bill Gates, including Bill Gates. 
you know, Bill Gates is a big advocate of getting rid of meat and, and, and replacing it with uh, bugs and insects, uh, our diet with bugs and insects and grain and things like that. And he's, I'm sure he's invested in this, uh, in this, which is one of the reasons why. Although at the same time, if you Google Bill Gates at hamburger joint, you'll see a bunch of pictures. He's, he's apparently is a hamburger addict himself. And he's always in line in Seattle at some little local, you know, their version of Burger Fi or uh, Cheeburger, Cheeburger, whatever they call it in Seattle. There's Bill Gates lined up wolfing down burgers. But, uh, but he's, he's behind this. Yeah, so they want the abolition of beef to fight climate change. <laughs> fight climate change. Yeah, Jeremy Rifkin. The abolition of virtually all other kinds of meats also and replacing with grass and insects as part of the average diet. They want to abolish the energy industries and replace it with windmills and solar panels, of course, communal housing, the leveling of wage differences by, by regulation. That'll work out. You know, didn't they try that somewhere before, like the, the Soviet Union, the leveling of wage differences? Okay. And they want to effectively nationalize whatever's left of the private sector with a 400% increase in taxation. For starters, uh, the World Economic Forum is on on record as advocating advocating increasing all taxes by at least 400% for the Great Reset. So that if they exceed with their lockdowns, that'll be step number one. Uh, although, you know, how are you going to increase everybody's taxes by 400% if they're out of work, if they're locked, locked down out of their jobs? That's, I guess they'll figure that out somewhere. And we're supposed to be quiet about this. We're not supposed to complain about this because it's all being done in the name of, quote, equity and inclusion, which I call the, the mating call of status everywhere, sustainability and the common good. Oh, there you have it, the common good. Okay, how could you, how could you be against the common good? Uh, and in this paper I'm reading, for, reading from, I, I have a footnote here. Uh, if you could Google this, the 1920 Nazi Party platform uh, where it says, uh, before they list all the policies uh, uh, that they advocate, they, uh, in German, it says, common good before individual good. They, they, the Nazi party platform of 1920 said, you know, you know the underlying philosophy beyond, behind all of this is the common good before the indiv individual good. And of course, it's the, the state that will decide what the definition of common good is. That's always been the sort of the rallying call of tyrants, hasn't it? Uh, that, that what we're doing is for the common good. That's why this, uh, this morning, my other talk about Hamilton, I mentioned Hamilton, and I called him uh, the Rousseau of the right. Uh, his, his, uh, his, his, his idea was that government should have more or less unlimited powers as long as the people who wielded those powers claim to be doing it for the common good. And in my book on Hamilton, I have a list of about 20 different um, synonyms that he used for the common good, the public good, the public interest, and on and on and on. And so, so that's what the World Economic Forum is, is saying. So we're not supposed to be opposed to this because it is the, the common good. And they also use the old socialist trick of saying that all of this is inevitable. So, so don't even bother criticizing it because, and, and, I, and I read Schwab's two books and they're almost impossible to read. It's just excruciatingly boring. It's fact after fact after fact after fact uh, about digit digitalization of life. But there's no, doesn't seem to be any overriding theme or theory behind anything. It's just 
you know, fact, 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 and, uh, and uh, to, to impress you how much they know about uh, the, the digital world. And then they conclude that uh, we well, see that, uh, you know, you know, we, we need to just comply and, uh, and we, need, we, we need smart guys like us to lead you around because obviously you probably didn't, you the reader probably didn't understand 10% of what you just read. You know, you didn't go to engineering school like Klaus Schwab did. And so, so that's my uh, presentation on the great nonsense of the Great Reset. I think it's just the latest attempt for some sort of crazy worldwide socialist government and uh, I take them seriously. These are these are some of the most powerful and influential people in the world. Bill Gates, uh, you know, and and people like him. Soros is a part of this, uh, and you you've seen their their pictures on the web and in newspapers. And so you have to take them seriously because they they inf they influence government, and uh, they've got the money to influence it even more. And uh, they could do great damage. Frederick Engels did with a lot less money. Uh, and during his day, and that's why I said these guys are like the new Frederick Engels. Uh, well, you know, wasn't it just uh, yesterday or the day before that uh, um, Bozo or what is his name, Bezos? Uh, the, uh, the, uh, get the two mixed up, like the, the guy with the red hair and everything, and and, uh, and the Amazon guy. Uh, he gave this um, the, the guy that worked for Obama, who was a self-described communist. And it came out, he had to quit. He, he was the green, the green energy czar for Obama. And it came out that he had a, a paper trail of, 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 of being a proud communist, communist this, communist that. Uh, Bezos gave him $100 million and, uh, to, have, uh, to give out uh, from a foundation. So he's gonna set up a new foundation funded with $100 million from uh, Bezos, the, the founder of Amazon. And you can imagine the type of things he's going to fund and finance uh, with $100 million. And, uh, and, you know, think of what the Mises Institute could do with $100 million, uh, you know, with, with $1 million. And then here you have this guy giving his uh, ideological soulmate, uh, you know, the Obama communist, $100 million. Who's this, What's this guy? Anybody else read about this? He, he's, he's been on CNN and he's... What's that? Oh yeah, Van Jones. Yeah, that's right. Van Jones. Yeah, I don't know why I couldn't remember that. It's a pretty easy name. It's not like DiLorenzo or anything. <laughs> Van Jones. Yeah, Van Jones. So, so anyway, so that's uh, maybe I'll, I'll end it there. And we'll, if you have a, a question or two, uh, I'll be glad to give it a try. Yeah. <laughs> I have about two or three minutes left of it. So obviously, with things such as this, uh, a lot of leftists will, will cause speculation and ironically defend, uh, you know, billionaires like uh, Bill Gates. When did this, all of this, billionaires and and, and uh, the Great Reset? When did it come become apparent to you? Or did at, at some point in time did it come become more apparent to you and less than just that speculation? Uh, well, you know, in in the United States, uh, historically, for the last century pretty much the uh, the Republican Party has been known as well not more than past century the Lincoln Lincoln was uh, sort of the the party the represented the party of the moneyed el corporate elites the he was a Whig and the Whig party in the 19th century was the the moneyed corporate elite and and the and the Republican Party was that that's what the Republican Party was and, and still is uh, you know, to, to a large extent. But it wasn't until uh, Bill Clinton became president 
that I, I realize that this is, is switched because Clinton was, uh, was a master fundraiser from the corporate world. He was even uh, banking millions from China at the time. It came out there with Chinese businessmen, you know, quote, businessmen were bundling millions of dollars. They would set up some phony American company and then get the employees you know, of the company to give, you know, 2500 bucks each to the Clinton campaign. And they got, they got caught at it. Nothing happened to them. Was nothing ever happens to the Clintons. I mean, they, they could find a, a, a severed head in Bill Clinton's bed when he was in the White House. And the, the Washington Post would say, oh, it happens all the time. They leave poor Bill alone. And, and overall, he's a good guy. Don't, you can, can't criticize him for everything that, you know, that happens to him. So that, that's when I realized that uh, the Democrat Party had become had got in on it and, and became really the, the party of uh, big business and uh, much more than, at least the Republicans, there were some Republicans like Charles Koch who, uh, yeah, they were involved in politics, but they wanted to move politics in the direction of freedom a little bit. Uh, but the uh, the Democrats, no, they gleefully want to move, uh, uh, and, the, and the corporations that are attached to them, they gleefully want to move the country in the direction of planning and socialism uh, because they think uh, there's money in it for for them, they'll figure out a way to profit from from all of this, and uh, as far as that goes, and uh, and so that's when I realized things things had changed pretty radically during the Clinton in '90s during the Clinton years, and uh, they they've sort of thrown labor unions under the bus. Well, I think somebody had his hand up over here. Thank you, Dr. DiLorenzo. What kind of strategies, politically or within the cultural institutions? you recommend for people to defend civilization against the <laughs> barbarians? Yeah. Well, I believe in the division of labor, and, and so you'll have to ask somebody else about that. I'm not a, I'm not a political strategist. I, I hate everything and everybody related to politics except for Ron Paul. <laughs> and, and so, and so I, 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 I just kind of get sick in the stomach whenever I even start thinking about these, such things. But uh, so I believe in the division of labor. And so... And that's uh, Tho, though. Tho Bishop is into politics a lot, and he has a lot of good ideas about that. So I, talk to him about it. He's, he's, he's a very smart guy, and, and I don't know if he's here or not, but he, he's, he's into politics, and, uh, and so is Tom Woods, for that matter. Tom Tom's, was instrumental in starting the Mises Caucus in the Libertarian Party. And I've always hated the Libertarian Party, but uh, I don't know, maybe Tom will do something good and, uh, and change it around. Yeah, they they were rude to Murray Rothbard. They 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 basically kicked him out and, and you know didn't want to have him have anything to do with it. These these people who couldn't you know, couldn't tie his shoes as far as you know the caliber of their intellects compared to Murray. But uh, okay, I think time's up and it's late in the day. And that's all we're doing.